doing our reading tonight. It is James 5, 1 through 20, so if you want to follow along on your sheet. So it says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your, eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all else, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone among you happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to read, uh, we're going to talk about in just a moment what Anna read, um, all of James chapter 5 as we wrap up our series in James's letter as we talk about endurance against all odds. Let's pray together before we get into this. Lord Jesus, um, I have loved getting to listen to you through your little brother, James, who did not believe you, who did not trust in you. Uh, until you appeared to him in patient mercy after you were raised up. You tracked him down. You traveled all that distance between Jerusalem and where he was. And you made him alive. You are the same as you were then. Your heart is still to travel great distances to find sinners who are dead in our sins, our hearts are hardened, eyes are blinded, and to open our eyes and make us alive. And so, Jesus, because you're the same, would you do the same in us, even tonight, that you did with your brother? And to the extent that you've done that this fall already, thank you. Thank you. Pray with us, we pray in your name. Amen. 
I've told you all a little bit about this season of my life, but not a lot. The summer after I graduated undergrad here at Georgia, I had a few months to kill while I was waiting for grad school to start in August. I'd never done a study abroad during my undergrad years, um, had some money uh, saved up and my parents were willing to help me. And so I got to go to the only country I really wanted to travel to at that time and got to live in Australia for two months. Six of those, two, six of those eight weeks, I was in Western Australia. I was with a wilderness leadership school called Knowles, National Outdoor Leadership School, and it was a, a six-week trip. For half of that, we paddled about 100 kilometers along this island chain off the coast of Australia. We would camp, set up camp on each place. And then the other half, we backpacked about 100 kilometers into the middle of the outback. Desolate, days and days from help or people or civilization. And we packed in all of our supplies on both parts of that trip. All of our supplies, all of our equipment, all of our food. There's 15 of us. We had the biggest packs I've ever seen, about 60 or 70 pounds of stuff in each of our bags. But even with all of that packed in, um, food was tight, space was limited, as you can imagine. So as the trip went on, and we got deeper and deeper into those six weeks, our little supply of food got smaller and smaller. And the food that we packed in was literally like a couple of bags of flour, a couple of bags of sugar, some salt, some spices, some pasta, some yeast, that was it. They taught us how to make everything from scratch, every meal. So as those bags got smaller and smaller and our rations dwindled, uh, our hunger got a little bit more constant. So there's a lot of dinners where we would eat a little bit of food and, and drink a lot of tea to try to keep our appetite down and, and feel a little bit more full as we went to bed. Energy dropped, morale dropped when food gets tight, right? So that was certainly something that was happening later on in the trip. Um, that's when I began to notice how our conversations around the fire after we'd eaten our dinner or while we were eating our dinner that's when I noticed how our conversations became more and more exclusively focused on food and specifically what restaurants we were going to go to when we got back to civilization, what we were going to order down to the most detailed things and who was going to be with us in that encounter. And so literally night after night, no matter where the conversation began, that's where it ended. All conversations led to talk about which restaurant or buffet we were going to go crush when we got back to the city and all the details that went along with that. I noticed in retrospect that those nighttime kind of group daydreams about where we were going to eat and what we were going to eat and how much we were going to eat and who we were going to eat with were fueling our endurance in the midst of real hunger and low morale and low energy. Those conversations kind of put some wind in our sails and lifted our spirits a little bit. It was a reality that we had not tasted at all. Like we were eating pretty bland food towards the end of our rations and limited food. But those food dreams in a sense were a lifeline for us and kept us going in the midst of that. 
Now here's the reason I tell you the story. Fixating on a certain future reality fuels your endurance against all the odds of present poverties. That's a long sentence, but listen to its logic. Obsessing, fixating on a certain future reality is gas in the tank for your endurance against all the odds of whatever you're in the midst of right now. Puts wind in your sails. If you get that, if you get the point of the story, you get James 5. Because though this is a long little little chapter, um, that's what he's talking about. James is offering to you tonight an obsession, fodder for you to fixate on to fuel your endurance in the midst of poverties and pressures that you face now, places and seasons you want to throw in the towel and be done, done with figuring out how to walk with Jesus, how to be in relationship with him, how to grow, how to put off old you and, and put to death sin and how to put on new you. The temptations, pressures, stresses that make you just want to throw in the towel. James is giving you a fixation, something to think about and obsess about that'll fuel your endurance through that stuff. Now, Lord knows the Christians that James was writing to in Jerusalem, new Christians, baby Christians, they knew their fair share of pressures and persecutions and powerlessness. And no doubt some of them wanted to be done with it, wanted to throw in the towel, were drifting. They were the people, these, these Christians in Jerusalem, they were the ones that James is talking about in verse 4 and verse 6. Look down at it. When James says to the rich, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers, kind of the lawn care crew who mowed your fields, the ones who are crying out. And then he says later on in verse 4, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. And then in verse 6, he says, the innocent ones that have been murdered or their lives have been slowly suffocated by the rich. Those are the Christians that James knew and is writing to. They're the poor ones, the disenfranchised, the powerless, the ones whose paycheck was always late and they couldn't do anything about it, so they just went without. Present poverties, hungers, deprivations, that are hard and make them wonder, how is this worth it? How is the way of Jesus worth it in these conditions? They were the ones who were steamrolled by the poor. Does it make sense why they needed fuel for their endurance? More than just a little generic, hang in there. They had a long life, a long time of no escaping this dynamic that they had to live in. So we've been beating around the bush. What's the future reality that James holds before them and holds before us? What does he want you to obsess about and to think about? Confession, I think I speak on behalf of most of us, maybe not all of us, but it's something that presently we probably don't think much about at all. Here it is, verse seven, the coming of the Lord. Verse eight, the fact that the Lord, the master, the king is at hand, which means right around the corner. 
And in verse 9, he gets more specific. He's not just saying generically that Jesus is returning, Jesus is coming back. Obsess yourself about that. That'll fuel your endurance. But he connects that reality with Jesus as judge. The judge is standing at the door. He's near. He's at hand. He's returning. A little bit of a, a one paragraph, indulge me, one paragraph of um, a little aside about how the Bible describes time. What, what the one who created time, how he describes what time is all about. The Bible says that the period of time that history has been in since Jesus was raised from the dead is the last times, the end times, the last days. That's not some future reality we're waiting on that's going to get really weird with helicopters and all kinds of other stuff. It's now. It's been the case for 2,000 years. We've been in the last days of history, the final act, the final season. The Bible describes two comings of Jesus, the Messiah. His first coming we're about to celebrate. Some of you have been celebrating it for a month. You've already got your Christmas stuff up. Advent. The first coming of Jesus. You shall name him Joshua or Jesus because he will save us from our sins. You shall call him Emmanuel, God with us to deliver us. Jesus coming the first time is coming to rescue and to save and to gather in the hopeless and the dead and the helpless and the stuck. God coming and meeting us where we are. That's Jesus' first coming. John says it in, in John chapter 3, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Um, I just, I knew this would happen. Every time I start to quote something, my brain just goes blank. That anyone who would believe in him would, have, would not perish but have life. John 3, 17. He did not come to condemn the world, but that in him the world might be saved. Jesus came bearing salvation and deliverance for whoever's in the room. You might be thinking, well, I'm not a religious person. I'm not Christian. I know, and I'm still talking to you. Jesus says he came for your deliverance. But the second coming of Jesus, by Jesus' own description, and yes, it's something he talked about a lot, a lot. Jesus' second coming is him coming not in salvation, not in rescue, but in judgment. Read the end of Matthew, read Revelation, read First and Second Thessalonians. Pretty much pick up any book of the Bible and, and read how it speaks about the day of the Lord coming in judgment. Jesus is depicted in his second coming, um, not as a little baby in a manger, but as a warrior bearing a sword on a war horse, coming to judge the world to judge unclean things and unclean systems and unclean people. So how in the world is that future reality which is certain? Last week James said, what do you know about tomorrow? You don't know anything about tomorrow. And now he's saying, well, actually you do know one certain thing about tomorrow. This warrior, this judge, this king is coming back to render judgment and to bring justice. How is that supposed to motivate us in a good way? How is that something we can look forward to? Let me ask you two questions and then make a statement, and, and hopefully it'll make sense. Let me ask you this. Who longs for a warrior with weapons to come quickly? Who is praying that prayer right now? 
Who wakes up every day and that's what they're obsessed about? When are the soldiers with weapons gonna get here? Um, the Ukrainians are probably praying that right now. Longing, praying that the Ukrainian army gets to their town to liberate their village, to render judgment and punishment on Russian troops that are there and to clean the town out of them that the people might have life again. You're seeing it, it's happening this week. Old grandmothers down to little kids gathering up whatever flowers they can just, just throw on the Ukrainian trucks as they drive by as they've liberated the town. They're longing for a warrior with weapons to come and render judgment. Let me ask you another question. Who longs for a judge who comes ready to render justice? Who in the world is looking forward to that? Victims are looking forward to that day. You hear it in news interviews, we just want to, we just want to see our day of justice come, right? Families of victims who've passed away or maybe been killed, we want, we want justice to be done for Steve or whoever. We want his day of justice. We want the right to be wronged. The oppressed, the powerless, the disenfranchised, people groups that don't have any power in a political system or in a culture or in a society, they long for someone to come and make it right. Thirdly, and most simply, and personably, how are we looking forward to Jesus on a horse bearing a sword? How is that a motivating thought? How is that something that a Christian can look forward to? Because it's Jesus on the horse. Because it's Jesus bearing the sword. And you know him and you love him because he's the one uh, who went through hell on your behalf that you wouldn't have to. He's your friend. He's your king who provides for you. He's your lover. I remember when I was a little kid, sometimes my parents would go do date nights out and we'd have a babysitter and I, my room was upstairs and right by a window that overlooked the driveway and I would stand there for what felt like hours, face pressed up against the window, waiting to see their car come back in the driveway. A little bit scared. Did they get in a wreck? Are they not coming home? What happened? I felt safer when mom and dad were home. I knew they loved me and I loved them. It was mom and dad. That's why I looked forward to them coming back. At a minimum, I know there's a lot here. I know it's complicated. I know it's not stuff we think about a lot, but at a simple level, is the thought of Jesus returning attractive to you because it's Jesus who's returning? Or does that not factor in? Who doesn't look forward to Jesus' return? Those who deny his authority? Those who imagine themselves to be king and judge? The word is autonomy, a law to yourself. I don't submit or yield to anybody else's law. I'm the lawgiver. I'm the lawgiver. And there's not room for two sheriffs in town. I'm the king. I'm not the triangle in this grand symphony of history that's all about Jesus. I'm the conductor of my story, of my life. People still stuck in that dark condition do not want Jesus to come back. It's a terrible thought of somebody coming and spoiling the party and interrupting your movie. 
And James would say, people who have spent this life building up their own heavens, their own heaven on the back of other people, at the expense of other people. For here, he's talking about the rich. He's not talking about rich Christians in the church. He's talking about kind of the power brokers, the deal makers, the king makers in Jerusalem in this age. The people who had the land, the money, the banks, the access, the status. People who had built their kingdom on the backs of people that they had defrauded, not paying them their fair wages or paying them late. What good is a late paycheck when rent's still due at the first of the month? Those are the people that don't look forward to Jesus's second coming. And then the guilty and the moral fugitives out there. At which point, I hope you're wondering, well, then what about me? How am I supposed to look forward to that? Aren't I implicated, right? Aren't I implicated? Not if you are in Jesus. Not if you are in Jesus, because Paul says for the Christian, this is largely Romans 6. I'm not going to go read it right now, but Paul's thought process in Romans 6 is that to be a Christian is not simply to be someone who made a decision for Jesus and now you've got to hold on tight to him. To be a Christian is to be someone who God has sovereignly grafted into Jesus Christ himself. He has fused you to Jesus. You're united to him. All that is true of him is now true of you. So Paul says, um, I have been crucified in Christ. Judgment has happened. And everything that led to Jesus getting crucified, I've been accused in Christ. I've been judged guilty in Jesus being judged guilty. I've been condemned in Jesus being condemned. I've been crucified and abandoned by God in Jesus's abandonment and crucifixion. I've done hard time in the grave because the wages of sin is death when Jesus was in the grave. I've been buried in him and you've been raised up in him innocent, vindicated, satisfying the demands of the law forever. For the Christian, your judgment day is in the past, not the future. You've already been through it. Another man has been terrified at the prospect of what he would answer for on your behalf you need not be terrified of what you will answer for. You will answer for his life as he answered for yours. Imagine this, I shared this at Freshman Fellowship the other week, I'll be brief here, but imagine this scenario, because I'm trying to help you understand the, the practical impact tomorrow of why this stuff actually matters to your life and your conscience and your emotions and your soul. Imagine if you committed just some heinous crimes, some series of terrible crimes. We're talking felonies, we're talking decades in prison. And people know you did it. You've been charged with these crimes. And I say to you, you know, I work in the DA's office and I'm like, hey, listen, I'm really sticking my neck out here, but I'm gonna hack into the system and delete the charging documents. It'll be like it never happened. It won't go to trial, and you'll be free. Would you sleep well at night if that's how you were let off, how you were justified, how you were vindicated? Not a wink. 
The rest of your life, you'd live a fugitive's life filled with anxiety. When am I going to get found out? Does this person know what really went down? Always hiding. Always living in fear. Always looking over your shoulder, fearing a future judgment that you know good and well will eventually come. But uh, think about the alternative. What if you were caught, you were charged, you went to trial, you were judged guilty, and you did the time, you did your 40 years to the last day, you satisfied the sentence and you were released. And a couple of weeks later, someone runs in you downtown and says, you're a criminal, I heard what you did, I'm calling the cops. Are you gonna be worried about that? Not at all. You're like, I did the time. The law is satisfied. I've answered, I've paid the penalty. That's you, son of the living God, daughter of the living God, cleansed and justified in Jesus Christ, who bled and died and was crucified, condemned and buried and rose up on your behalf. You're not the fugitive waiting for when God's really going to see through you and be like, oh, I didn't know about all this other stuff. You're the one he's already seen that in and condemned in Jesus on your behalf that you might walk free with burdens off your shoulders and get busy learning how to live. So this is how Christians can look forward to the day Jesus will come back and set all things right. This is how, this is why James is saying, put these things on your mind, obsess about them, think about the return of your king, the return of the judge who will call things for what they are And he's saying, and we don't have time to get into all this, but when he references, consider the example of the prophets, specifically about Job. He's saying, life right now in the scene that you're living in might feel terrible. You might want to throw in the town. But James is saying, zoom out and look at the movie you're in. If the chapter is unbearable, zoom out and see the book that you're in. God will bring relief. He's kind and full of compassion. He will hear your cries. He will deliver you just like he did Job. I know this is hard stuff to talk about. Some of you might just be feeling like dots are connecting. Some of you might be thinking, I haven't known how to think about Judgment Day before. This might be helpful. Some of you are not liking this, and that's understandable. Um, It's never been easy. I, I doubt there's a generation in human history where people are like, give me more. This is great. Keep it coming because we're all implicated in this. But this is a particularly dangerous time to talk about it, it seems. It's just not good manners to talk about judgment. Because who are you to judge? Who's God to judge? Who's Christianity to set the rules of judgment? And it can seem really attractive. And some of you might feel this pull now, some of you will feel it in the years ahead. It might feel really attractive to just pretend like Jesus is never coming back. God is not paying attention. There will not be a final accounting. There will not be justice. Rights, uh, sorry, wrongs will not be righted. It can be attractive to just kind of live in that naivete and be like, no one's one's awake at the wheel. Do whatever you want. A while ago, I saw um, a tweet from an old friend of mine who a while back um, had had left the faith, left Jesus, and just said, I I don't believe it anymore. I've had an enlightenment, kind of deconstructed. 
And this is what the tweet said. You wouldn't imagine the relief that comes when you realize hell isn't real. And then followed it up with, I'm not going to hell, you're not going to hell, nobody's going to hell, there is no hell. This passage isn't chiefly about hell, but it is about judgment and justice and Jesus returning to bring that. And what I found ironic about and, and heavy about that tweet was that this friend I had long admired for her huge heart for the poor, for justice, for equity, for wrongs committed by people with power against people without power to be righted. In fact, that was one of the reasons I followed her. All this stuff about justice, justice, justice. And do you see the irony in that? Do you see the antithesis, the two beliefs that are absolutely antithetical to one another? The same person who said, cheer up, God's not paying attention, there is no final accounting, there is no justice in this life, then coming over here and saying, I wanna fight for justice, to right the wrongs, to push back on the oppressor. You can't have it both ways. Either there is justice in this world for my neighbor and for me, or there is no justice. There is a hell because God is good. There is a hell because God is just. There is a hell because God is not a corrupt politician who overlooks wrongs that have really, truly hurt people. There is a hell because God is holy and righteous and will not abide with evil. He will not live in a world where it just gets to have eternal blank check to continue on, but it must be vanquished, must be punished, must be eradicated. And there is a cross because this God who says voluminous times in his earthly ministry here that there is a hell, there is a cross because this God is willing to take that hell on himself that his people need not take it on themselves. But friends, it is a false peace. It is a very attractive peace. It is a false peace to naively just wish away that you live in a world of consequence and that actions must be answered for and, and inaction, passivity, things we have left undone must be answered for because all of it has a body count. All of it has a toll. God is listening, he is paying attention. He hears the cries of these dinky little day laborers who didn't get paid on time. And you're like, what, an in, what a minor thing. Not for them. How do I put food on the table for my kids when I get paid a wage that I cannot put food on the table for my kids? Do you know who cares about that? Almighty God cares about that. He says it right here, the cries of those diddly little workers reach his ears. And he's not okay with it. And those who oppress them will be given ample opportunity to repent, just like the tax collector, just like Zacchaeus, or they will answer for that. And they will pay for that. So friends, 
if you're in Jesus, this deepens your security and even joy that you are in Jesus. God has spared you from what would have been your future, and he's made it your past. If you're not in Jesus and this is unsettling or you're like, I've never heard this stuff before, I don't even know about any of this stuff, then hear this. The Bible also says the reason the earth spun today and the sun rose and you got up with breath in your lungs is because, not because God is clumsy or late, he's patient, wishing that none should perish, but all should repent. Back to the way the Bible keeps time, the Bible says today, these last days, today is the day of salvation. That's the banner over this period of history, the day of salvation. The day where repentance is yours for the asking, yours for the taking. The day where Jesus has sent his church all around the world to track people like me and you down to call you back home. So why linger? Why, why continue to stiff arm? Why stay away? God himself has come to meet you at your coordinates and plead with you to be reconciled to him and Jesus. Here's where we, here's where, here's the last part of this. Everything we've talked about to now is the mega answer to what fuels your endurance in this age until Jesus returns. Lastly, we got to talk just briefly about how do you and I help each other hang in there and endure because this is, this is why I indented this so that you could see everything we've talked about so far is the first two paragraphs. This last chunk is the last indented part. You and I get to gladden each other's endurance by reflecting God to each other. The church, which is basically the community of Christians, of sons and daughters of God, people who've been redeemed by God and made alive, the church is a community of people who are like holding up mirrors, reflecting the warmth and energy of the sun onto one another on a cold day. All of us are being warmed as we hold mirrors that catch the rays of the sun and divert them onto you. That's what James is talking about all in that, those last three paragraphs. Here's what I mean. And by the way, those mirrors that we hold to each other is our attitude towards each other. We reflect this good God to each other. Do you wanna know how you will eventually feel, and I'm saying feel the warmth of God's forgiveness for you? Do you wanna know how that leaves the world of just being an idea you hear preached about and becomes something you feel in your body? Peace washing over you? Here's how you feel it. When another brother or sister who you've wronged and you can see the damage you've done on their face says, I love you more than I love being right or more than I love making you pay. And they forgive you. They release you from responsibility. They don't bring it up again. And that happens one or two or three or four times and you begin to be like, oh my gosh, God says he forgives me. Do you wanna know what will help you feel the warmth of being able to come out of the hiding and confess your sins to each other? real present tense sins that you don't know what to do about? Do you know what's gonna make that feel safe? When you get in the reps of doing that with brothers and sisters in the church or in a place like RUF, and they respond to you with listening, not lecturing, compassion and care, or if you're still playing word games and you're like, it's not that bad, it's not a sin, they confront you. And then you realize, I can confess like that to God because these people aren't perfect. They're not love, he is love. 
I can confess similarly to him. Do you want to know how you'll know that God is with you in your suffering, in the bad news that's coming into your life, when your friends are present with you too? James says, is anyone in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Have a party. Let them, the community, sing and celebrate. Is anyone sick? Get the elders of the church over in your house so they can be with you and pray over you. This is the logic. Until fellow Christians help make things concrete and demonstrate to you, and you demonstrate to them, reflecting God's love to each other, until that happens in real life, a lot of this stuff remains feeling like an idea. It's a reality, but it feels like just an idea. He goes on to say we don't manipulate each other with words. We build up enough trust in each other where I don't have to prove and persuade you that I'm really telling you the truth by, I swear to God, I swear, like here's all these oaths that I'm going to make so that you'll just believe me and take me at my word. But you take me at my word because you trust me. Because I either keep my promises or when I don't, I say, I flaked out on you, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that again. He says we pray for each other because prayer is effective and God loves to answer prayer. We advocate for each other. And he says this, and this is where we end tonight, a very real place that I love. I love where James ends his entire letter. My brothers and sisters, if any of one of you should wander from the truth, he's talking to Christians, if any of you in this room tonight should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Time will prove this out. Some of you have had friends who sat on these chairs next to you last year who aren't here now. People in you with Freshman Fellowship who haven't been around for two years, left their church, are drifting. We are not people who just indifferently watch that happen and wash our hands. We are people who pursue in love because God pursues you when you stray and pursues me when I stray. We are not people who rush straight to, well, those who've left us were not among us. That's the last place we go, not the first. And we follow them, and we pursue them, and we pray for them, and if needed, we gently and lovingly confront them because we represent a God to one another. We reflect to one another a God who pursues us when we wander, and we do. So friends, here's where we, we, we end this whole series is for the Christians in the room, for those who don't know what you are, for those who know you're not in the room. Jesus stands before you in the day of salvation and says, come to me. I'm here for the taking. I've come to free you, to rescue you, to help you, to carry you. Come. Why stay far away? If you don't know how to come, Talk to me or Casey or Grace or anybody in the room. You're not alone. We can help. Let's pray. Jesus, for this whole semester, for teaching us, for leading us through this letter, we thank you. Your word is not dead. It's not words on a page. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts and divides and heals. So unleash the power of your word through your spirit in our hearts. Would these seeds germinate and grow and bring fruit that pleases you in us? Pray it in your name.